You're listening to a message from South Hills Church in Burbank, California. For more information about South Hills, check out southhillsburbank.com. Um, hey, thank you so much. Um, I feel like we say thank you all the time, but uh, we really do. It's, a, it's an honor that you would be here this morning and uh, trust us with your Sunday morning. Um, I, I'm sure you guys do this. I do it all the time. Uh, but I, I don't like being told uh, what to do. I just don't. Um, I have this constant conversation. I don't like how she speaks to me. And she tells me what to do, and she's not nice about it. And my kids sometimes are like, Dad, are you talking to the GPS lady? And I'm like, yeah. I'm telling her to stop talking to me like that because I don't like how she speaks. And so she's always telling me, you know, turn right turn left. No, like, please, or would you consider? It's just very forceful. I don't like it. But I do the same thing to my kids. I I tell them what to do. They don't always listen, but I try to tell them what to do. And there's this thing that happens within us that when we we tell people what to do or when we're told what to do, it's almost as if we, we don't do what people tell us to do just out of spite because we don't like being told what to do. And if you look at your kids and you say, you know, don't go there, what do they normally do? They go right there. Hey, don't touch that. They touch it immediately. Don't run into the street. They sprint out into the middle of the street. Like, my son did this on Friday. He's eight years old. He knows better. We do this thing when we take our kids to school and and we walk our dogs. And if our dogs happen to, you know, pardon the the grossness of this, but our dogs use the restroom like all dogs do. But we like to bag it, you know, we're, we're responsible dog owners, and um, we double bag it so that as we're walking, I oftentimes I throw poop bombs at my kids, okay? I toss, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have it in a bag, okay? It's not going to hit them, they're not going to get gross, but they just freak out, and, you know, I don't know why, but they get hit with a poop bag from behind. I don't throw it hard, I toss it. So my son was trying to throw one at me, and he was throwing it this way, but somehow it went that way. And before we could say, don't run into the street, he runs out into the middle of the street to retrieve a poop bag. So that was my son this week, and we had to have a conversation about running into the street and not throwing poop at your dad. So we had to have that talk. <laughs> but when we tell our kids not to do things, oftentimes they do the opposite out of spite, and we do the same thing as adults. And the problem is, is that most of us in this room, when we see somebody who has something going on in their life, we, we automatically think that we know what's best for them. We automatically assume that we know how to fix their problem, we know how to fix them, and so we lean in on their issue, their problem, and we try to tell them what to do to fix it. And I'm sure you've had these moments with people where you just sit and they are talking to you and they're telling you all about some situation or this thing going on in their marriage and, and, you know, I can't believe that he did this and he said this or she said this and she wants to this and and blah, blah, blah. And the whole time, all you're thinking, and this is what I usually do when I sit with people, I don't counsel, I'm not a good counselor because I want to fix things too quickly. And so when I sit, I'm just always like, well, just stop being a jerk. Just, just stop being a jerk. If you would just stop, fix, you're done, you're fixed, get out. Like, that's all I want to try to help people do. But that's not what most people need. They don't need somebody to fix them. It's a constant tension in our marriage I, because I'm, I'm a, I want to fix it and my wife just wants to talk about it. And she just wants to express her feelings, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I, I immediately want to go into just fix-it mode. And so it's been a constant tension in our marriage, and we always are trying to figure out, okay, I, okay, this is just, hey, tell me ahead of time. 
do you want me to fix this or offer any solution or would you want me to just listen? Or just listen. Okay. And then I know what to do. But oftentimes I want to fix it and, and help people and tell them what they need to do. And you do the same thing. And the problem is that most people, when they're told what to do or they're told how to fix something, they resist and they push back because most people don't need another lecture. Most people don't need to be told a better way to live. Most people don't need to be told to stop being a jerk. They just want somebody to listen and they want somebody to care. And unfortunately, it's the image that the church has gotten over time. Because what we've done as a church, the big C church, is that we've given this image of the church that what the church exists to do is to help you figure out your mess. That we're going to call you in, we're going to do something to get you through the doors, but we just can't wait to tell you what you're doing is wrong. We can't wait to try to fix you. We can't wait to just tell you how to make your life better. And I think it's why most people are resistant to saying yes when invited to come to church with you. Because they have immediately put up this thought process that, well, the church is just going to try to fix me and I don't need fixed. The church is going to tell me I'm lost and I, I'm not lost. I know right where I am. And so there's this immediate resistance. And too often what we have done as a church is that we have these thoughts and these views and we push them onto people. We try to bait and switch them into the doors and, and then after we get them in and then we can play like some soft emotional song that gets them a little bit teary and they're not sure why and then bam, we drop the hammer on them. You need to fix your life. You're wrong. Everything about you is wrong. And that's what the church has done. The church has gotten really good at it but the problem is, is that the church has not loved people enough first. And so people have gotten bait and switched into church, been told they need to fix their life, but there's no relationship there, there's no trust there, so they have immediately walked away. Because we're afraid to have conversations sometimes. I think it's, it's interesting to me that this was never something that Jesus dealt with. No one ever accused Jesus of trying to get people to trust him just so he could drop the hammer on them and fix their life. Matter of fact, what Jesus did is Jesus did the opposite of that. And we're going to look at it in just a moment. We're going to try to answer this question this morning of why is it that Jesus, or why is it that people who distance themselves from religion, why is it that people who distance themselves from religion were so drawn to the person of Jesus? That as you look through the Gospels, the, the stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the four eyewitness accounts, the four people that wrote down the life of Jesus, rejected by religion, people who have walked away from religion, people who were outcasted by religion, were so drawn to the person of Jesus. I spoke with a, a lady literally after last service, she was leaving and she said, I want to share my story with you real quickly and and it was like during the second song of worship. And I'm like, I, I kind of got, got a thing I got to do in a minute, you know. Like, but her story was just beautiful. She had been raised an atheist her whole life. Didn't grow up with any idea of religion in her home. For 22 years, she didn't even understand or even look into this idea of God or Jesus. Just didn't believe in any of it. And then she's been on this journey over the last 20 years. Feeling like God's been drawing her and she didn't know what it looked like and 
suddenly over the last like year or so, she just said her, her and a friend, a coworker, actually started talking to her about Jesus. And she started to think like, well, maybe I should just check it out. Like, why do, why are people so enamored with Jesus? And so she said, hey, should we go to church together maybe? And so they made a list of churches. South Hills was number 10 on her list of about 20. She tried nine churches. She came to South Hills about a month ago. And she said, and I never, or two months ago, she said, and I never went to another church after. I woke up the next weekend and I thought, man, I should go to number 11, but I don't want to miss out on South Hills. Now, is that because of South Hills? No. I think it's because of the people of South Hills. But she felt something and she saw something that was different. And what she saw is that South Hills was open and loving and caring for people who were still searching and that for people that were far from God, they could come in and be in a safe environment where they could learn and they could be challenged and they could be encouraged, but they could move at their own pace. I wonder why did, why did so many people, why were so many people attracted to this movement that Jesus created who didn't fit anywhere else, but they fit into what Jesus was talking about? And what was it that Jesus was doing that was so different that caused people to lean in with such excitement. And I think this morning we can learn. We can learn from what Jesus taught us. We can learn by watching Jesus at a dinner party and the conversation that Jesus had. So if you would, we're gonna look into the gospel of Luke this morning. If you have a Bible or an app on your phone or device, uh, go to Luke chapter 19. We're gonna look at 10 verses. And this is the story of this man named Zacchaeus. If you have uh, been raised around church or maybe you were a kid when, and you went to church as a kid, you might have learned this song about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. I always found that offensive as a child. Like, why do you have to call him we? Like, kids just say like he was small or he was short or, but we just feels like you're just, you're slapping Zacchaeus in the face at this point. Like, why teach children that? But that was in an age where we could say things like that and not get in trouble for it. But this is, uh, this is the idea of Jesus connecting with this guy named Zacchaeus. And you're going to find out very, very soon why this was such a big deal. So look at Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses. It says this, that he entered Jericho and was passing through. Who is he? He is Jesus. Jesus enters Jericho. It's a city. And he is going to pass through Jericho. Now, what that tells me, verse 1, is that Jesus had no intention of stopping and staying in Jericho. Jesus was passing through. He was there for a moment, and he was going to pass right on through to the next town. He had no intention of staying. He had no intention of performing miracles. He had no intention of meeting anybody. He, had no, he was just coming through. And as Jesus would often do, as he traveled, people would follow him in crowds. And when they heard that Jesus was coming, they would rush out and come out of their homes and they would line the streets and they would want to see this guy named Jesus because he's this guy who they think might be the Messiah. They're not yet sure, but he's performing miracles and he's doing things that nobody's seen in, in forever. And all they know is that, well, this kind of stuff happened in the Old Testament, but it hasn't happened any time since then. But this guy's doing stuff that we've never seen before. And he speaks in a way with authority that we've never heard before. And he's challenging people to live in a way that we've never been challenged before. And so people fill the streets. Verse 2, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. That tells us two things about Zacchaeus. 
Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector, which means he was in charge of all the other tax collectors. Tax collectors were worse than sinners. They were like a notch below sinners. They were sin collectors is literally the chief of sinners. And Zacchaeus being the chief of tax collectors is literally the chief of sinners. And he was rich, which means he was very good at what he did. And what he did was steal from everybody else. He was very good. He was great at taking from other people what wasn't his. He was great at forcing his way through, getting people's money, stealing from his own people. So he's the chief of sinners, and he's really rich because he's really good at what he does. And he, Zacchaeus, was seeking to see who Jesus was. You might skip past that when you just read this story, but that's important. Zacchaeus, the chief of sinners, wanted to see who Jesus was. He was interested. There was something that caught his attention because he's heard that this guy Jesus is different than all the other religious people. And he just had to see him. But on account of the crowd, he could not see because he was small in stature. So because Zacchaeus is a little short, he can't see, and all the crowd is there, and he can't see where where Jesus is. And so you can almost picture, like mentally you can picture this. He's on his tiptoes trying to see over their heads, and maybe he's jumping a little bit, and he's he's finding some boxes, and he's climbing up on some boxes so he can just see over everybody's heads. But he he can't see Jesus because he he knows that he's there. He can see this group of people moving, but he can't quite see him, and he wants to see him. He wants to physically be able to see this guy named Jesus. So what does it say? He ran ahead and he climbed up a sycamore tree so he could see, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus sees that Jesus is coming, and he sees the direction, and he sees kind of the path that he's going to be making. And so he runs behind the crowd, and he he sees the sycamore tree, so he climbs up it. And so just just picture this moment for just a second. This is a guy who's a chief tax collector. He's probably in his upper 40s, 50s, and he's, he's he's not a young man anymore, but he sees a sycamore tree, and he climbs up this tree. So you've got this little old hobbit-looking man, and he's climbed up into a tree, and he's waiting for Jesus to come by. You can just picture this old man up in a tree, and everybody's like, what is Zacchaeus doing? Well, first of all, we hate that guy, but why is he in a tree? And he just had to see Jesus. He was desperate to see Jesus. That's all we know. We don't know what he wants from Jesus. He just wants to see this guy named Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, verse 5, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus is moving through this crowd of people. Everybody's pressing in, everybody's calling out, everybody wants Jesus to do something for him. And he looks up and there's this old little man in a tree. And there's something about Zacchaeus that grabs Jesus' attention. His heart is moved, his his emotion is moved. Jesus sees this man and he sees a desperation in him. And even though maybe everybody else in the crowd is shouting Jesus' name and asking Jesus for things, Zacchaeus isn't doing anything. He just wants to see. Almost like there's this purity in his motive. Jesus looks up and he says, hey, Zacchaeus, which you can imagine the whole crowd just goes dead silent. 
that Jesus is calling out the tax collector. So everybody's probably thinking, Jesus is going to light him up. Like, we can't wait. <laughs> Jesus is going to tell them like it is. Give them all their money back, Zacchaeus. You sinner. You're the worst of the worst. Like, you just think, like, everybody's wanting, like, Jesus, please, 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 like, just lay into him. And Jesus says, hey, Zacchaeus, get down from there. I'm coming to your house. I'm inviting myself over to your home for dinner. Zacchaeus wasn't planning on hosting the Messiah for dinner that day. He just wanted to see this guy named Jesus, but there was something in him that Jesus saw. So he hurries down, verse 6, he hurries down and he came and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, who's they? The religious. When the religious people saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to the house to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mean, this is the religious people standing outside once again as they always did to Jesus. And the religious people are outside going, can you believe it? Jesus went into the house of a sinner? He's going to eat dinner with a sinner. And they're all grumbling. They're all complaining. How dare he? How dare the Messiah eat dinner with somebody like this? And Zacchaeus stands up. At some point in their meal, at some point at this dinner party, Zacchaeus stands up and says to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus willingly changes. Zacchaeus immediately becomes a generous man. And I love that he says, if I have defrauded anyone, which everybody in the room is going, you've stolen from everybody. You've defrauded everyone. So he is not only going to give half of his income back to the poor, he is now going to refund fourfold everybody that he has ever stolen from. So the crowd is like, yes, like bonus tomorrow. Zacchaeus is giving me four times the amount he has stolen from me. This is amazing. But the religious are ticked off. The religious don't say anything about Zacchaeus' willingness to be generous. They're only upset that Jesus was willing to sit down and have dinner with a sinner. See, as a tax collector, Rome would have, Rome would have put Zacchaeus in charge. Rome was notoriously known for overtaxing their people, and, and the job of a tax collector would go to the highest bidder, so it would go to the person that was willing to to take the most from their own people, stealing from them on top. So he's adding his own taxes to the already high Roman tax. So as long as Rome gets what they want, they don't care what you do with the rest. So Zacchaeus is totally within his boundaries of charging more. So he's stealing from everybody. He's overcharging an already high tax rate. And he is taking everything that he can from his own people. He is the worst of the worst of the worst. And everybody knew it. Therefore, everybody hated Zacchaeus. I mean, imagine the level of hatred towards somebody who would not only stab his own people in the back by working for the people who have now occupied you. So not only does he work for Rome, 
but he enforces Roman taxes, which everyone thinks is unfair. But he also adds his own special Zacchaeus tax to everything. This is a guy who's willing to steal from everyone that he possibly knows and cares about for his own gain. And scripture says he is rich, which means he is good at taking from everybody because he doesn't care. So Zacchaeus is hated by everyone. So when Jesus calls him out of the crowd, you can imagine everybody in the crowd is just waiting for Jesus to drop the hammer and fix this guy. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't even sit at dinner and tell him that he needs to give all of his money away. What did Jesus do? Jesus simply sat down and had dinner with him. He sat down and he showed Zacchaeus that he cared about Zacchaeus. Maybe for the first time in a long time. Maybe the first time in Zacchaeus' life he finally felt that somebody actually cared about him. And not his money, not what he could do for him. But Jesus goes into his house. And the religious people, they're so offended. They're so angry. And everybody's waiting for Jesus to just light up Zacchaeus. Tell him what he needs to do to fix his life. Give him a list of rules to start living by. But Jesus never does that. Why? Because Jesus prioritized connecting with the lost over convincing them that they were lost. That is something that you need to take a picture of, you need to write it down, and you need to brand that onto your heart because this is what you and I are called to do. You see, too often we want to just, we want to just convince everybody that they're lost of what they've done in their life that's wrong, try to tell everybody that what, what's going on, they need to change, they need to fix it, they need to start doing this, you need to start coming to church this much, you need to start giving this much, you need to, you need to start doing this much good for the poor, you need to start doing these types of things. Let me give you a list of things that you can't do in your life anymore. And what we think the church is all about is just giving people this list of do's and don'ts, and that's not what Jesus ever does. Jesus wants to sit down and connect with somebody who is far from him. Not sit there and try to convince Zacchaeus of how lost he really is. And this is what we need to learn as a church. How do you and I, as a church and as people, love others without trying to make them feel like we're just waiting to drop the hammer on them? How do we invite people to an Easter service without them feeling like we're just going to bait and switch them into some moment? We have to learn to connect with them, to love them more than convince them of how lost they are. And I think we have to learn from Jesus' intentions. You see, people wanted Jesus to change Zacchaeus, but Jesus just simply wanted Zacchaeus to know that he was loved. And Jesus wasn't trying to keep the religious people happy. He wasn't trying to prove a point to all of the, the, the religious people because he understood who he was trying to reach. Jesus understood, I came to seek and to save the lost. I came to seek and to save the lost. I did not come to make religious people happy. I did not come to try to demand some set of rules and guidelines that nobody can live up to. I came to simply seek and to save the lost. And if that is why Jesus came, 
then what we have to learn as a church is that that is what our mission then is. That is our purpose. That is what we try to do. And as it turns out, by watching Jesus and demanding, not guilt, not shame, it's love. That love was the key for somebody to change. It wasn't rules and requirements and ultimatums. And what we see in this story is that once Zacchaeus realizes that he is loved, once Zacchaeus sees that he's cared for unconditionally, what does he do in response? He voluntarily chooses to make life changes. He voluntarily chooses, not not Jesus goading him into it, not Jesus pressuring him into it, not Jesus shaming him into it. He immediately says, well, if I'm loved like this and you're coming into my house as the Messiah, then I am willing to give up half of what I have and I will repay everyone that I have ever stolen from. I will choose to change. Why? Because he felt loved. He felt accepted. He felt valued. Jesus never had to ask him to do it or tell him what to do. You see, the kind of love that doesn't require change will always, always, always inspire change. See, when you don't require change, when you don't demand change as a, as a reaction to the love that somebody gets, that's, that's, having a, that's having something attached to it. That's not a free gift. That's not unconditional. When we make our love conditional, change doesn't happen. But when we begin to love people because that we simply love them for who they are, change will come voluntarily. Change is the catalyst when we begin, or change is the result of love. And love is the catalyst as we help people understand through loving them who Jesus really is. See, this is the kind of love that Jesus is calling you and I to. It's a love that we learn to love others that does not require them to change first, but we accept people as they are. That when we have a sign on our door that says, no perfect people allowed, you're going to begin to see this this new phrase that, that we are the perfect place for imperfect people. You're going to begin to see that across all of our campuses at South Hills where this year we just feel like God is is wanting us to do this as a church and, and letting people know that this is the perfect place for imperfect people. That you don't have to change who you are. You don't have to live up to some standard. You don't need to fix your life before you walk through our doors. That you are accepted and you are loved as you are. Because Jesus doesn't stand outside of Zacchaeus' door and say, hey, Zacchaeus, um, if you'll just kind of uh, fix your life up a little bit, if you'll repay everybody their money, um, hey, if you'll also just, you know, if you'll say this prayer first, then I'll come in. He says, hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner today. And as a response of Jesus' love for Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' life and that community was changed. You see, when there's the questions, when we become preoccupied with these questions of, you know, how, how do I make somebody do this or make, make somebody do that? Or how can I convince them of the things in their life that are wrong? Or how can I get them to see that I'm right and that they need to change? How can I get people to figure out that my way is the better way? Or how can I convince somebody to come to church so that the church can get them? When we get preoccupied with those types of questions, we stoop to 
condescending condescending people or uh, condescension, manipulation, oppression, all sorts of mental, emotional gimmicks. We try to twist people into doing something that the ends don't justify the means. And we get to this weird place as a church where we begin to talk down to people that somehow we're better because we're on the inside. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. Jesus says, love them. I came to seek and to save the lost, and that's what I'm calling you to do. See, Jesus doesn't do any of those things. He never manipulates. He never guilts. He never shames. He seemed to believe that if we could help people realize, if we could just help people realize that they are worth loving, that they would be more loving in return. If we could just help people realize that they have value, they would begin to value others in return. And what changed this community was not a lecture on morality. It was not a sermon on the depravity of man, but it was a dinner party that Jesus used to build a relationship with a man that was extremely lost. Jesus never had to tell him that he was lost. He simply loved him and he accepted him. And that dinner party led to a man's salvation, which led to life change, which led to community change. So I'm audacious enough to think that if we as a church would get this, if you as an individual Christ follower would get this, if you would begin to love people for who they are, not what they do for you, if you would love people for who they are, not what value they could add to the church or the Christian world, if we would just learn to love people for who they are, I believe it would change your workplace. I believe it would change your family. I believe it would change our community. I believe we could be a catalyst for changing a city, if we could really get this idea of what Jesus teaches here. Let Jesus change people's hearts. Let the Holy Spirit change people, not me. It's not my job. My job is not to convict you or to guilt you into something. If you ever feel guilt or shame from something that's said from this stage, that's not me. I think it's the Holy Spirit speaking to you Guilt and shame never come from God. That'll always come from the enemy. The Holy Spirit will remind us of things in our life that are out of place. And then it's our job to respond. So what I want to do is just encourage you this week. Would you spend some time this week thinking about those in your life that you need to reach out to? Those in your life that you need to invite to an Easter service? those that you need to try to have a conversation with, and they may be the people that you have the most difficulty talking to. It may be somebody at work that you just can't stand being around. Maybe somebody in your family that you just haven't talked to in years and they live in the same city as you. Maybe a neighbor that you just, you don't even want to make eye contact when you see him outside, you'll go the other way. And maybe this week God would put it on your heart He would burden your heart this week to find a way of just letting that person know that you care, that you value them, 
Maybe it's over a dinner party. Maybe it's over a cup of coffee. Maybe it's over just a conversation in the front yard. But I think Jesus wants you and I to go out of our comfort zone this week and do what he did. Meet somebody that's far from him. You don't need to tell them that they're lost. You just need to love them. And at some point, the door opens for an invitation and you're there to invite them to simply come and see. That's my prayer for you. That's my challenge to you this week. I believe God wants to do something absolutely incredible in and through this church this Easter. That we're going to have an opportunity to impact the more people than we've ever imagined. And I think it's going to happen because you and I will begin to get this. We'll begin to reach out to those that are far from God and invite them in. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a simple challenge of a story of this man named Zacchaeus. That a man that was just wanting to to reach out, a man that was wanting to see Jesus. And I think there's an interest from people that they're just people that want to know what this whole church thing is and what Jesus is really all about. But there's some preconceived ideas. There's some baggage that has been in the way. And it's not our job to just try to fix them. It's our job to love them through all of their pain and all their baggage and all their disconnect. So would you put people on our minds and our hearts this week? I, I pray that we, maybe for some of us in this room, that we wouldn't even sleep well this week because we, we're thinking about those that we need to invite. And until we invite them, we won't get a good night's sleep. God, I, I, I think you want to burden our hearts for those that we know that are lost and far from you. And so that's my prayer this morning. God, if somebody's in this room this morning that is far from you, I pray that they would understand that in this church that they are loved for who they are. And that if today is the day that they need to say yes to you, I pray that they would take that step, that they would say Whatever they need to say, they would have their moment with you this morning and they would simply say yes to you. They would invite you into their heart. God, they would fill out one of those little cards that says, I said yes, so that we as a church can come alongside and assist them. God, but help us this, this week. Just wreck us this week to love those around us that are hard to love. And maybe we see life change happen because of a dinner party that we get to throw. So Father, we love you. We pray for this offering that we're about to receive this morning. God, that you, you've given so many of us so much. God, and I pray that we would just honor you in the way that we respond, the way that we give, the way that we express generosity. For those that have taken 90-day challenges, I pray that you would just continue to let them see your blessing in their life. Father, we're honored to be a church that's willing to step out and be generous. So we thank you, and we love you, and we ask your blessing on this time in your name. Amen. Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message. We hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on all that's happening at South Hills Burbank.